look, it's, I'm slightly overcooking it, I suppose, because it's not life and death. I didn't want necessarily to do something that I thought would be very easy. I thrive in that kind of environment. I do really enjoy it. Hey, I've, I've got a printer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It was such a rewarding experience. So wholesome. I love it. Today on the File Notes podcast, we're joined by Jordan Cole, Operations Director at Minter Allison Rudd Watts. Jordan is an incredible communicator and meticulous planner with an expertise in the behind the scenes of a law firm. In today's episode, we'll discuss Jordan's career journey leading him to his current role at Minter Allison, how to navigate obstacles and setbacks during projects, and why those early on in their career can take the pressure off. Thanks for joining us. seems like the whole universe has conspired against us recording this podcast episode so thanks so much for joining us Jordan um, we we've known each other for a, a good while now and yeah really excited for today's episode cool so just 10 years into your career you're the director of operations at Minter Allison Rudd Watts can you tell us a little bit about Minters and define what operation means for a large law firm yeah, so um, Minters is a um, tier one national law firm um, and with offices in Auckland and Wellington. We've got uh, 47 partners um, and just just like the other large law firms, practice in a range of um, sort of commercial uh, commercial law practice areas. It's managed by a management team and, and the partnership. What operations looks like in a law firm, I think that differs law firm to law firm to a degree. A lot of it is... Um, Sort of structural um, in some senses, I think. So for me, I think the the, the way to summarise it is probably variety, and that's something that I personally really enjoy in, in my day job, which is that no no two days are generally the same. So I manage um, a few teams in Auckland and Wellington in the sort of office management space, but also um, litigation support, one of our, our fee earning teams. Um, and our client services teams as well. So um, that is sort of from the people management side of things, I guess. And then there's the component of the other stuff that keeps me busy, I guess. So um, we're moving premises in Wellington at the moment. Um, so I'm here at the moment. Um, and uh, that's keeping me quite busy. And so I look after uh, the firm's um, premises and, and, and manage that with our landlords in Auckland and Wellington. Um, look after the firm's business continuity. I'm heavily involved in our um, sustainability and ESG program. Really, I've, I think if it doesn't have a natural fit with finance, HR, IT, um, business development, it generally sits in my camp. Um, and so I think that brings with it that variety. And yeah, I, th- I, I just really enjoy the variety of it, working with um, working with our partners and, and board on, on a range of things. Yeah, interesting. And, you know, on the topic of challenges, of course, yesterday we were we were intending to record this episode, and then Optus suffered the <laughs> worst outage in Australian telecommunications history, and so mm-hmm. I wasn't able to really talk to anyone. And then this morning we had some issues with Riverside, although you know I use Optus, I like them, and I like Riverside too. But um, technical issues aside, it sounds like you've probably got one of the most diverse roles and um, probably a law firm where you're across so many different areas. What are some of the challenges associated with like context switching across all of those different areas? I think the pace of the pace can sometimes be a bit of a challenge um, in terms of um, you might be working on something for an hour or two and it's extremely critical and urgent and then you just need to switch to something else because someone has let you know that the fridge is broken. So, you know, so I've got to let our facilities team know that the fridge is broken. So sometimes that sort of, when you're dealing in a fast-paced environment, often law firms are, um, and you're trying to find a solution to something and sometimes that those little smaller kind of curveballs get thrown into the mix, I think, um, that prioritization can sometimes be a little bit of a challenge. But again, I, I thrive in that kind of environment. And I do really enjoy it. I think for me, when I reflect on our um, COVID era, which I was heavily involved in in terms of managing our firm's response, along with um, others in the firm, that was a real challenge because, um, well, but for the obvious, but in terms of the intensity of work around 
planning for our workforce of 350 to work from home at the drop of a hat. And luckily, we got very good at it, as most businesses did. Uh, and so we could adapt quite quickly. But you know, particularly around all of the vaccination era and, and working with partners on our policies. It was a very busy period. Um, and so I think for me, um, a lot of that time was effectively full time on COVID with bits and pieces on the side. And when I think back, it's like, geez, what what did I do that took a, a full time <laughs> job almost? To, you know, what was I doing almost full time during that period? But it, it genuinely was um, when, I, when I think back. And so, you know, it was very hard to decompress, I think, after that. Even on a particular day, you might be doing something and then needing to switch to a business-as-usual type activity or task. And, and that was often quite a challenge for me. That's really interesting. And I wonder, you mentioned prioritization there. I imagine when all these tasks are coming at you at a fast pace, a lot of the prioritization is kind of intuitive. You don't really think about it. But... If you were to sit back and, you know, look at your uh, work and prioritize it really thoughtfully, what kind of process and thought, well, what thought process would you go through to do so? I think what what would the impact of this be on our clients, I think, would be the first thing I would think of. And I, I look at clients a little bit differently than probably what our what our lawyers do and what our partners do in the sense that yes our clients are absolutely our, the clients that um, we're providing legal services to um, but being a non-lawyer in the law firm um, I look at our clients our client base as being our lawyers because at the end of the day my view on this is that non-lawyers and law firms are there to make the lives easier of our lawyers so that ultimately they can be freed up to provide exceptional legal services to our clients in a very competitive legal market uh, in New Zealand so when I think about prioritising something, I, I think about the impact on the business, about um, what if I do this first or, or, or don't do this first. Um, and look, it's, I'm slightly overcooking it, I suppose, because it's not life and death what, what I deal in day to day. But um, I, I do often think what the impact would be on, on a client, whether it's a, a paying client in the market, um, depending on the nature of the task that I'm, I'm doing, or what would the impact be on, on partnership or this particular legal team or so on. So at the moment, I'm as I, as I said earlier, I'm heavily involved in our premises project. That's taking up effectively all, all of my day at the moment uh, and, and will do until we move uh, in about May next year. Uh, so for me, that's kind of how I do it. And I've got a fantastic team uh, behind me as well. And so sort of spreading that work out uh, as much as possible. Awesome. I'm really keen to talk about the premises work and also the kind of COVID-19 response. Um, maybe a little bit later, but for now, I'd love to kind of go back to before you started your career in law. So you were at the university in Auckland, you're studying toward an undergrad degree. Mm. What were you studying? And did you have like a particular career in mind? <laughs> I did. Uh, so I left school um, being very confident that I was going to be an accountant. Um, I was actually quite good at accounting at school. Um, so I um, started at the University of Auckland to um, study a BCom in accounting. Uh, and realised in the first year that actually it was very different to school and I absolutely hated it. No offence to all the accountants out there, uh, but it just <laughs> wasn't for me. And so, yeah, obviously you have to do a range of compulsory papers in your first year um, of a business degree and accounting was uh, was one of them. And so I switched majors. I actually can't remember now what I switched to at the time. Um, and then partway through my second I decided that I'd actually had enough, um, but I was too too deep in to, to kind of throw it in, and I, I didn't want to throw it in, but I just felt as though I needed to change. Um, and there were some things going on sort of personally at the time that meant that I couldn't quite dedicate 100% of my mental capacity to, to studying. And, and look, I was probably a bit of a crap student at university, to be fair. <laughs> I think I was one of those students that I got okay marks uh, in the first couple of years. I did quite well at school, so I thought that that would translate automatically into university, but as we know, that doesn't, that's not the case. And with a bar on site um, at university, you get quite distracted, well, at least I did. And so um, that coupled with kind of some things going on personally, I thought, well, let's just hit pause on this and, and reflect on, on what it is that I actually want to do long-term, because at this point, I, I wasn't quite sure. I knew I wanted to do something in the corporate world, but wasn't quite sure what that looked like. 
Uh, and so um, I was just working part-time at a, at a supermarket at the time, just putting myself through uni, as most people do. Um, and so I picked up a few extra hours there for the short term, um, and a role came up, I think, in sort of the print room, mailroom uh, type role at um, another law firm, uh, Meredith Connell. Uh, and so I started there in 2012. And the plan was for me to kind of do a year and then go back to to studies. Eight years later, I was still there, um, but I did finish my studies in my defence. I did study part-time and, and Meredith Connell supported me very well through that through that period. Yeah, and I know that between university and joining Meredith Connell, you also considered potentially like a career in the police. Yes. Yeah. Um, but of course, today, you're not in uniform. No. You know, you, you didn't become a police officer. I wonder, like, you know, a lot of people go through that process of, I don't know what I want to do in life. And answering that question, what advice would you have for young people trying to like figure out what they want to do? I think um, there's so much pressure at school, or at least I can only talk from my experience, of course, but I felt at the time and, and certainly looking back that there was a lot of pressure at school that by the time you finish, you have to have it figured out. So you have to you have to say, I'm going to university, I'm going to study X, Y, Z, or I'm going to learn a trade, or I'm going to work at this place and, and work up the ranks. Um, and so I, looking back, I, I had um, also fell into that pressure, I think. And if someone told me at high school that I would be doing what I'm doing now, I wouldn't really have thought that that would be the case. Um, and, you know, sometimes I do think how I ended up in this role and doing what I'm doing just generally, because um, it's not really an intuitive role that you grow up at school and think I'm going to work in a law firm and legal, you know, in operation. It's not quite seen as something that that is um, a common role. So for me, I think that it's um, that it's just that inherent pressure at school to have it figured out by the time you leave. And, and I do think that that contributes in, in large part to people when they get to university in particular, they kind of don't have it all figured out. Uh, and um, you know, some degrees are much better than others in terms of flexibility of changing majors on the way through, and a BCom at Auckland is, is one of those. Um, but not all of them are, um, particularly law, for example, once you're in, you're in. Um, and so, um, yeah, I, I, would, I would say that it's that kind of pressure um, that starts to build up at school. And I remember actually attending um, our kind of school year leavers dinner with the teachers and parents come along and your year level are there and you, your name gets called and you go up, shake the hand of your dean and get your certificate or whatever and, and sit back down. And in that um, process, when they introduce you to come up and get your certificate, or whatever it was, um, they tell everybody what it is that you're off to do. Uh, and I would love to figure out somehow how, you know, whether we're all doing what we said we were going to be doing all those years ago, because I guarantee we, we aren't. Um, and, and I think that's a good thing. I think, you know, people can figure it out and um, along the way and, and generally you kind of land on your feet and, land, you know, I think everything happens for a reason. Yeah. I, I definitely agree. And I think um, it's really interesting. In our last episode, we were talking with Hayden Wilson from um, Denton's Kensington Swan. And, you know, some, a point that he raised was that actually we often think about law school as this place where we train lawyers how to practice law. But in fact, so many law graduates go on to careers in other fields. Mm. And the same is true for many other disciplines um and so i think the i think yeah to your point like a lot of the pressure and stress that comes from trying to decide what you want to do in the future is thinking about a lot of your decisions as if they were irreversible mm. um and something we take really seriously at vxt is um sweating irreversible decisions and thinking really thoughtfully about them but when it comes to decisions which are reversible we can turn around and walk back through that door um just trusting your intuition and mm. not worrying too much because if you're right then that's great mm. and if you just kind of trust your gut and make the decision quickly um it's likely going to save you a lot of time and um a lot of stress yeah. as well i think for some people as well there's that uh, there there is a sort of 
inherent family pressure as well in some instances. I mean, mm. I, I'm lucky in that regard. I, I didn't have that. My parents um, had their own businesses and worked for themselves, and um, you know, they were very supportive and, and, and would, would be very supportive of whatever kind of career path I think that I, I would have chosen. Not many people actually think get to have that, or at least not everybody, and mm. probably, yeah, some people really wish they did. Going back to that first job you had at Meredith mm. Connell, you went through a number of roles relatively mm. quickly. And now, of course, you're doing one job where you could be said to be doing a number of roles. You have so much variety. Do you think that that was something you kind of always enjoyed, that variety, and maybe it was something you were looking for? Or do you think it happened just more organically that you moved through those roles? Yeah, I think um, I think I never once – I don't remember – um, in my early years at MC, um, ever kind of having a plan. Um, and um, I think back now and think, God, what was I thinking? Because now I am a planner. And so, um, but clearly it worked out for me at the time. And so um, I, I did h- hold a few roles in the, in the eight years that I was there. I think um, that a lot of it was, I would say a lot of it was organic in terms of opportunities as they arose. Um, kind of stuck my hand up. MC was a place that, and I don't know if it still is like this, but certainly in my time there, it was a place where you could put your hand up and get stuck into anything. There was no kind of this is your lane, this is my lane type approach. And and I'm not saying that culture exists at Minters either because it doesn't, but um, MC was um, unusually unique in terms of that. And so that enabled me, I think, to get some quite broad experience well outside of my role. Um, when I think back to some of the things I did there, um, I, I uh, a lot of it actually didn't have anything to do with what I was doing, um, but enabled me to get a much broader understanding of how law firms function, both um, sort of operationally, but also just um, how to make a dollar too, um, and just the, the business of law, I guess. And I was lucky enough to be able to take that uh, forward into, into my current role. You mentioned that you had like a lot of opportunities to do different things there. You were I imagine you were involved in quite a few projects. Are there any significant ones that stand out to you? Any significant ones? Um, the biggest one that I was involved in uh, was very much towards the end, and unfortunately I didn't see it through because of this opportunity came up. Uh, but they were moving the whole their practice management system uh, across to a new platform, and for a law firm that's huge. It's everything from time recording and billing and client reporting and document management, and it's... It, it, um, drives the firm essentially so that's quite a big project and MC was the first country I think globally to purchase this full suite of product from Thomson Reuters uh, and so um, it was I think it was sort of 18 months two years I was working on that before I left um, and they've since gone live with it um, so that was obviously quite a large project um, so yeah, I think a lot of it was self-dri- self-driving projects as well within the role so that I had. So I worked quite closely about um, sort of five years plus in my time there with partners on um, around the digitization project of all of our um, all of the Crown prosecution files. So that involved working quite heavily with the police and the courts um, on just what that looked like in the courtroom um, and how the evidence was being collected and passed on to the Crown. Um, so that that role, when I think back on my time, that role was probably my favourite. Um, it was extremely varied. I got to work with some fantastic people, really bright people, but also very funny and caring. And so that was definitely one of my more favourite roles that I had at MC. So I'm really interested to double click on the practice management system project. Could you walk us through the decision-making process around, um, you know, that that led to the implementation of the new system at Meredith Connell? I'd be really interested to kind of, I guess, like break it down a little bit into assessment of the systems that are available and the needs that need to be addressed and kind of the planning of the implementation, I suppose, Mm. and like how those differed and like what that what those processes were like when it came to yep. planning and implementation. Yeah, so I wasn't heavily involved in at the very beginning. Um, I was involved more in sort of user groups at the beginning as opposed to kind of on the project team. That came a little bit later. Um, but from a process perspective, we had a um, we had a very old system at the time that was kind of being 
patched and dragged along by our um, chief information officer at the time, who did a great job of keeping it alive. But it's kind of a risky business, I guess, as well, having one person that can kind of just drag a system along. Uh, and it was also very old. And so um, it was obvious to the firm, I think, that an, an investment needed to be made. Um, and uh, because of the age of the the, the um, system at the time, you know, there was no automation, there was no kind of integration across systems. And um, so a lot of work was being done manually by people. Uh, and so that the impact of that in law firms is that often clients then get inconsistent documents, they get inconsistent material from us, and that's just not not not, not a good look. So um, there was a big upside to changing systems. And so once MC made the decision on a principal basis that, okay, we need to move to something, we don't know what, but we do, they um, pulled an RFP together and sent it out to the market. And then they invited the providers in, and this was when one of the processes that I was involved in, where they broke um, the system down, I think, into several parts. I can't remember how many, but there were quite a few. Um, so for example, it was sort of a time recording, a billing session, a client reporting session, and trust account session, and so on. So, and then they had people from in the, from across the firm who dealt in those areas in the room to kind of, uh, for a bit of a product demo. And then we gave that feedback back to um, the chief executive at the time. Um, she was running the project. So, and then ultimately a, a waiting exercise was applied. I'm, I'm, I'm guessing I wasn't involved in the decision um, on that, but um, they ultimately went with the 3E uh, Elite product. Yeah, interesting. And I guess may, maybe the there are like similarities across the different projects you've worked on, you know, during that time, but also since then. Like, how do you think about... Um, implementation of like a project like bringing on a new practice management system or, or equally moving to a new office like mm. what what do you kind of sit down and do and what are those like what are those things that you think about when you're when you're looking to roll out I think the first thing before even any decision is made and, and, and maybe even we just talk about premises as well um, or look at it with a premises sense because that's just what I'm doing at the moment um, I think um, the first thing, just generally, project or no project, is just why are we doing this? Um, I think understanding the why is actually super important because you can't convey or convince the partnership who own the business that something needs to happen unless you're very clear on why this needs to happen in the first place. Um, and so um, I think being very clear on, on the why and kind of the mission that we're trying to achieve here, I think that is the, the first thing. It's not the sell, it's it's just the mission. Why are we wanting to do this? Because actually there may not be much appetite for the why, in which case that's fine. The status quo is fine. But I think um, that that's probably the first thing. And look, sometimes that's super obvious. Like in the case of premises, for example, we've been in our current building for 35 years, the fit out is getting on, the building served us extremely well, but there are potentially other opportunities in the market and our lease was coming up to an end. So that kind of gave us an opportunity to just do a, a few market scans actually and, and try and figure out what it was that we wanted to move to or, or what we wanted to upgrade to if we wanted to stay. So I think the wine and um, that was drilled into me, I think, quite successfully, clearly, by the chief executive I used to work under at, at Meredith Connell, Kylie Mooney, and um, it's certainly something that's stuck, uh, which is being very clear on the why and being able to communicate that quite clearly. Yeah, and when you're confident about why a project is really important and the problem that it solves, how do you communicate that to the partnership and the broader law firm like what are, what are those responsibilities look like and what is best practice um well i often think that um when you're dealing with partners in a law firm it's all about influence without authority um, because uh, you can't really tell a business owner or, or group of business owners what they have to do it's not about what they have to do so um i think one of the biggest things in a law firm is is more about that influence ability and, and the ability to build that, those strong relationships across the partnership, um, but also across um, the, the non-partnership cohort as well. Um, so um, I think, it, talking from my experience, it's it's um, 
involving the partners very early on so that there's no sort of surprises that, hey, I've done all of these market scans on other buildings, for example, and I think this one's the best, so let's move here. That would not work. So, so um, you've really got to bring your partners along on the no surprises approach as if they were heavily involved in it um, because they need to be. They're the ones uh, paying for it. It's their brand. It's their business. and It's their, it's their sort of business's reputation and so they need to be very heavily involved in that and, and even if I if I think about kind of internal operational matters um, quite often partners are very heavily involved in that and it's quite critical that they are brought along on that as well and you know we've we've um, we've got good forums here at Minters I think to, to share and disseminate information but also to be able to um, bring a group of partners together and, and brainstorm and kind of think about something so um, it's almost like there's no pride in the ownership of an idea in a law firm, in my view, where um, you kind of all just are in it together, but um, it's run very differently than a corporate where sort of a, a one or two senior managers might have an idea about something and they take it to the board and it gets rubber stamped. Whereas in a law firm, I think there's this misconception that things happen much quicker in a law firm because you work with the business owners, you can get answers quicker. But I think it's the opposite because you work with the business owners where actually you've got to social, socialise things, you've got to influence and bring people along. And so in, in some cases, it can actually take a lot longer to get things done in a law firm. And I actually really enjoy that. Mm. Yes, it's a drag sometimes depending on what it is, but actually um, I do really enjoy it. I, I, I enjoy the challenge, the debate, um, and, and ultimately where we land. Um, can often quite, you know, can often be quite an innovative um, outcome. Yeah. When you're working on these projects and there's like an unexpected obstacle or setback, you know, post you, you, you've made these decisions, you're trying to implement the project, whether it's, you know, a practice management system, you're, you're setting up new users and going through training and you've identified that, hey, look, what what is actually a clear requirement wasn't discussed, wasn't thought about, and it looks like the new system doesn't meet that requirement, or an office, there's this big delay, or, you know, part of the office that's causing a real problem, part of the fit out. How do you respond to an obstacle like that? How do you think about um, overcoming them? I think... Um... And this isn't necessarily, I know your question is sort of project-based, um, but my response is kind of more general than that. I think um, uh, when something, when anything doesn't quite work out to plan, whether it's a project like you've explained or whether it's something that I've kind of said we should do this because I think this is better or, or something like that, um, I think just um, not showing, not being too scared to say, guys, that was a flop. You know, not not being apprehensive about just owning it and saying, look, we tried, my bad, sorry, <laughs> um, and just go back. I think there can sometimes be, you know, some people can be um, quite committed to the idea and almost to the extent that it clearly is not going to work, but we just still have to push forward with it anyway. And sometimes there are reasons for that. Um, but I think, you know, where something clearly is not working and there is big pushback, and I've learned this in some cases the hard way myself, that you've just got to take your foot off the gas and say, we tried, it hasn't worked, I'm sorry, let's just go back. I don't see that as failure. I see that as, look, we gave it a good nudge, but actually this is causing people a lot of pain. And at the end of the day, as I said earlier, at the end of the day, we're all here to make our legal team's lives easier so ultimately our clients can get exceptional legal service. And if we're providing a barrier to that, then we're not doing... Us, you know, we're not doing justice to the firm. So I think for me, it's that, that honesty up front to say this hasn't worked. Yeah. And I think that's a really common issue, you know, because what you talked about there is really um, sunk cost fallacy where, you know, people, you've been working on a project for some time in a particular direction. And so it feels really important. You've already spent all of this like time, this money, these resources on this particular direction. And so changing now feels like you've lost something. Um, you've lost all of those resources and somehow they're a waste, but often, and I've like you, I've found out the hard way in certain situations that, um, sometimes you just kind of 
have to look at the situation you're in from the outside and not think about the history of your decisions and then just, you know, consider what is the best next step holistically. Um, and that can really be a serious emotional mm. problem to overcome in its own right as as like a key decision maker in a project like that. Yeah, look, I, I totally agree. And we touched earlier on influence in a law firm. And, you know, I think if, you know, lawyers are smart people, they know when something isn't working, you can't sit there and lie to them and say it is. So um, I think when, when, when that does happen, you risk losing that credibility. And when you've got no credibility in a law firm, it's very hard to get things done. It's very hard to work, <clears throat> excuse me, it's very hard to work closely with the partners to influence outcomes when you don't have credibility. And so I think, um, in my experience at least, lawyers prefer that honesty and candidness upfront early on, say, look, guys, we, we gave it a nudge, as it worked, let's just go back. Uh, and, and that is absolutely something that I would... Um, would stand by. Today's episode is sponsored by VXT, the phone system built for law firms. VXT integrates with practice management systems so that when lawyers make calls, their billable time and legal advice can be saved in the right place automatically. 20% of billable time goes unrecorded. A lot of that is phone calls that get forgotten about. Get some of those billables back using VXT. Go to vxt.co.nz or click the link in the description to find out more. So I actually wanted to know a bit more about how you landed in this role. So you had eight years or so at Meredith Connell and then now you've joined into Alison Rudd Watts as the operations manager. How Was that a role you were looking for or that found you? Uh, I was looking for it. So after I was about eight years at MC and I was very open with our chief executive at the time that um, I was getting itchy feet um, and I was quite keen to do more. And, and to her credit, she kept me on for probably 18 odd months uh, longer than I I had expected at the time and the work was great and um, I really, really enjoyed working at that firm um, and, and think very fondly of my time there. Um, but I knew that kind of eight years in the same place while working on some fantastic things, I, I, um, I thought that I needed um, a new challenge and, and a fresh challenge and this opportunity came up at Minter's for the operations manager role at the time, um, back in 2019. So the December of 2019, which was about three months before COVID. Um, and so I started in the thick of um, our Auckland move into Commercial Bay. So the fit out was mostly complete by the time I um, by the time I started. So I, what I inherited was all of the kind of internal, you know, getting rid of all our stuff, getting ourselves moved ready, a lot of the change management. We were going from offices to open plan. So in some senses, it was easy for me because I didn't have to deal with uh, part of the decision-making tree about whether we go open plan or not. That had already been made. So um, unlike our Wellington discussion where I was quite heavily involved in, in direction of travel there. So I started in December and then, of course, we had COVID the following February, March, April. Um, and um, so that kind of distracted me a little bit. Um, as well, when I still was effectively learning where the bathrooms were. So our fit-out was mostly complete, but the building itself wasn't, and so we couldn't move into an incomplete building. And so that caused quite a bit of delay, um, which was um, proving challenging in terms of getting ourselves in the mindset of, okay, we're moving on each date, just because of the program slippage um, that, with history. It sounds like you were somewhat kind of in the deep end when you joined. I mean, they were in the middle of a big project, and then COVID hit, and that would have all been quite a lot going on. Mm. What were those things that jumped out at you immediately that you just wanted to take action on as soon as you stepped into that role? Um, I'm quite a task-orientated person, and sometimes that's to my detriment, um, rather than just kind of taking things a lot slower. But I think when I first started, I, I remember sitting down at a meeting, it would have been my second day, if not my first day, and it was a meeting about the premises, a sort of weekly premises meeting um, with a bunch of other internal people that were um, assisting um, on the project. And I I was sitting at the table along with the others and we were kind of sitting in silence and I was waiting for someone to start and everyone was looking at me and it kind of became obvious that uh, people were waiting, were waiting for me to start the meeting and, and I was cheering it and I thought, okay, 
I, I wasn't completely um, uh, on the same page when I started about exactly what my role was going to be on the project. I knew I was going to be heavily involved, but I, um, I wasn't quite ready to literally be leading it and, and making decisions. But that, when I look back, that really was probably quite naive of me for not really figuring that out during the interview process. And look, I think when I think back about that whole process, I think that could, could have been an epic that was quite risky on my part to take on this role and it could have gone either either way in terms of uh, the move. So it could have been a complete flop and failure and I would have had a very short time there or, or it would have worked. And luckily it was the latter because we're talking right now. And look, there were a lot of people that contributed to that before I came along. So that's certainly not me taking the credit for that. It was, you know, it was a very busy time um, and a very crazy time. But um, as I said earlier, I, I thrive in that kind of pressure and I remember much like most other businesses um, in the CBD at that time where I think we were given one or two days notice that we were going into level four and so everyone went straight down to PB Tech and bought all sorts of stuff and I remember at the time our chief financial officer and I trudged down Shortland Street and um, went into PB Tech and got printers and all sorts of things for people and I think it's just about um, part of part of that is just not being precious about and this is kind of just generally in a law firm, not being precious about your role and what you're doing on any particular day. I touched earlier on being told that the fridge is broken on a, on a particular day. So, okay, no problem. I'll pass that on to the team and get the fridge fixed. Um, and it was the same with COVID where, you know, you'd rock down the road and get a printer and a screen and a keyboard if that's what was needed to keep things moving. Um you know, I, I remember putting, you know, it was death by QR code around COVID. So there were QR codes around the office for, you know, signing in and that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, I think it, it was a crazy time. But when I think back, you know, um, it was very fun. Um, it, it had the added challenge for me, of course, of not knowing anybody. Um, and that was the hardest thing for me because I'd come from a firm where I'd been there for so long and I knew everybody um, and I knew just by virtue of the different roles I had, I did touch on so many different parts of that firm. Um, and I found that a real struggle, probably harder than I thought, actually, when I moved across and I didn't know anyone. I knew the people immediately around me uh, that sat around me, but other than that, um, I knew nobody. Uh, and it was it's very tough in a law firm to get things done when you don't know anyone. And, and worse yet, when they don't know you. Yeah, I can imagine some potentially confused people, you know, hearing from Jordan um, <laughs> while they're working from home in the first few days of the pandemic. Hey, I've, I've got a printer. Yeah, 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 exactly. But on the flip side, it was a great way to get to know people too, right? Like it, it was a reason to get in front of people, much like the premises when I started. I remember um, uh, holding a partner meeting sort of two or three weeks in um, and everyone, oh, a good chunk of them <laughs> wondering who I am. Um, so, you know, if, I think if there are reasons to get in front of people like I had at the time, that obviously helps. Um, so there is a flip side to that. Yeah. Thinking back to the first few days of the pandemic, how did you think about the most important things? You know, the pandemic hits, the news drops, we're going into lockdown like well, tomorrow. We, we were, and I don't want to... Um, I, don't, I don't think this is an arrogant thing to say, but I think we were very good at it. We, and, and I think a lot of businesses did get very good with it. I think the first once, the first time, maybe the second time, it was new. It was, it was possibly a little bit exciting, um, notwithstanding the fact that it was actually a horrible situation that, that the economy was going into, that the country was going into, and that, that, and that COVID, you know, I'm not detracting from the fact that COVID um, has destroyed many lives. Um, but it was a very different experience than what anyone had anyone had experienced in. And so I think that coupled with the fact that um, it was busy meant that there was this little bit of kind of busy excitement. And so we, we were quite lucky. In some cases, there was a mad dash to do certain things to get us ready for lockdowns. Um, but because if, if we weren't moving, I think it would have been a very different story. We'd rolled out new monitors. So we had a whole bunch of um, old monitors that people could take home. Um, and so we were rolling out new laptops. So everyone had new laptops. Um, there was, uh, we were given, you might remember, but we were given a bit of a heads up from the government that actually um, 
you know, this uh, the level one, two, three, four system was coming in, and these are the rules around it. And and I think we were given sort of three or four days heads up that we were going into level four. And so a lot of businesses, and we were one of them, um, we did a trial working from home day or two, and it worked really well. We came up, we did have some issues around VPN licensing and things, but we were able to work through that very quickly. And so we were we were kind of set up quite well. And because we were going through the process of decluttering all our paper for the move, people were already quite comfortable with the idea that um, we don't need all this paper. Um, In Wellington, um, obviously they had fewer lockdowns in Auckland, but there were some where they were in lockdown as well with us in Auckland and um, Wellington, our Wellington office is already very um, sort of paper light. Um, In their last move about 10 years ago, they had to move a couple of times in and out of the building while it was being refurbished. And through that process, they actually digitized a lot. Uh, And so they were already quite comfortable with that. I think busyness, I think, um, was one thing. I think towards the end, and I think a lot of people would agree with this, it really kind of started to screw with you a little bit because I think when we got put into lockdown, it started to get very short notice. You know, it was sort of the night before or, um, you know, I remember my wife was heavily pregnant with our first baby. And I, I realised a lot of people have, have had a rough experience with, child, you know, with childbirth arrangements and things during COVID lockdowns. And luckily we managed to avoid lockdowns uh, when our baby was born in 2021. But, um, you know, last minute, I remember my wife's baby shower was meant to be on the Sunday and on the Saturday night, quite late on Saturday night, Chris Hipkins came on TV and locked us all down. And um, and so all of this food was in our house ready for this baby shower <laughs> the next day. And it was just, um, it was just chaos. So, um, you know, and there was another occasion where our, all of our partners were on a conference in Queenstown um, and they were put into lockdown that Saturday night and it was quite late again and they'd all had quite a few drinks, uh, as you would expect, as had I. I was sitting at home on a Saturday night uh, and having to deal with that um, where a bunch of partners, like you can be stuck in worse places, right? So I can't say I felt sorry for them um, instantly. Um, but there was quite a lot of logistical issues around getting some people back um, and, and communicating with staff on a Saturday night, uh, particularly with the partners. Uh, so... You know, there were all of these kind of things, and, and you know, personally, it, it was quite difficult. So we, I said we were um, expecting our first, and we, as I said, we were lucky to uh, avoid lockdowns with um, the hospital birth. I know not everyone was that fortunate. I was very lucky, and I, I do think I was lucky because I got to spend, uh, so 2021 being that very long, Auckland lockdown, sort of three-odd months, I got to work from home and spend all that time with our, our newborn, and that's time that I would never have had with him otherwise. And I've since we've since had a second baby, uh, and by comparison, I haven't had that time with her because um, so. And once you know, on the one hand, I really cherish that. I know my wife went absolutely crazy uh, not being able to go out and do all of the exciting things that, that new mothers want to do with newborns. So um, so she missed out, and and I feel for her on that. Um, she's a trooper, um, and so. And she did a fantastic job uh, during COVID. And um, and then um, one of the lockdowns, I was diagnosed as being a type 1 diabetic. And that kind of came out of complete left field. I'd always been in quite good health. Um, and I had always kind of had this misconception about what diabetes was. And so I've kind of had to learn a lot since 2021. So now being sort of fully uh, insulin dependent. So having to deal with that and come up to speed with that and, and managing or uh, being part of our COVID response management and things all from home. And you know, it, was a, it was a very full on time. Wow. It is, is that like a condition that you had had your whole life but had gone undiagnosed? Or is it something that... Developed. Um, I'm told it's something that developed, which is a little bit un- rare in terms of it developing. In my age, I mean, I'm 31. A lot of people get diagnosed with type one diabetes um, in childhood, so uh, it came as a it did come as a shock, um, and so I was just feeling unwell for probably sort of three or four weeks, um, and did what probably everybody does and Google your symptoms because they were a little bit unusual. Some of the symptoms, the main one being you're just constantly thirsty, you've just got a dry mouth constantly regardless of how much water you drink and so that's kind of the, the leading symptom it turns out um so trudge along to the doctors did some tests and um it was that that 2021 famous lockdown uh, so it was on that day that uh, i was told that i'm a type 1 diabetic wow what kind of effects did that have on your 
your life and your work and everything? A, a lot more than I was expecting, to be honest. You know, I said earlier that I'd always been somewhat in good health. You know, I'm certainly not, um, um, I'm certainly no bodybuilder, but I'm, but I'm also someone that has never needed to go to the doctors. You know, I've had an appendix out, that's it. So I've always um, been in relatively good health. And so, um, and this has changed that, right? So I, I have to um, count, count and calculate how many carbohydrates I'm eating and do a bit of a calculation to figure out how much insulin I need every time I eat. Um, and, you know, so there's this misconception that you can't have sugar. It's, that's not, not actually the case. Um, for me, you know, every type one, so type one diabetes is a few little, there are some variations to it. So not every type one diabetic is the same. It was quite a learning curve, um, you know, remembering to give yourself medication when you eat, that was a novel concept to me. And remembering to take, you know, administer medication. And um, I've never kind of been one, uh, the type of person that's kind of scared of needles, but obviously injecting yourself multiple times a day now, that's quite a new thing. Um, so there are a lot of um, advancements with technology around diabetes management. And I'm lucky enough to be able to have a, um, a sensor that sits in my arm that tells that, um, off to my phone that tells me what my blood sugar is doing so I can um, address that quite easily. Um, so yeah, it's been a learning curve. That's so cool. The sensor in particular, uh, I love technology as, as is probably very obvious. Um, there was news recently about the new Apple Watch and how um, it will be able to measure your blood sugar um, and do other things without being invasive whatsoever. Um, so it's some kind of new sensor technology that where you can literally wear a watch and um, you measure um, a variety of important vitals that will uh, that, that are crucial for understanding when you have conditions like type 1 diabetes so um, not to turn this into an apple advent though <laughs> no look i was very i was very well supported by family and um and even uh, even at Minters, so one of our partners at the time, she's since left. She's she's a type one diabetic, and so I was able to talk to her about things. She she had had it for most of her life, uh, so she had obviously a lot more experience with it. So um, so yeah, it, it was one of those things that you just kind of come up to speed with and learn. Um, the timing was a little bit unhelpful, but um, sometimes mm. these things are, and you just got to deal with it. Yeah, connecting, especially in the early days, connecting with other people that are in your situation is so important isn't it yeah yeah no definitely yeah hmm. so volunteering can be a really great way of uh supporting kind of community organizations um while also facing you know problems and developing your own skills mm -hmm. i volunteered a bunch while i was studying i got a lot of value out of it and and you know was able to support some local communities in christchurch uh, which was, you know, a really, you know, something I, I really enjoyed doing. You volunteered at Lifeline mm. Aotearoa for a few years. Could you explain what Lifeline is, how you're involved with it, and what motivated you? Yeah, so Lifeline um, is a fantastic organisation that is self-funded in terms of um, donations and things. They, they get no government funding at all. Um, and they are a helpline and a text line service for people who want to talk. So I was a helpline counsellor volunteer there for just over two years, I think. Um, I've been looking for something to get involved in for a little while at this time. I wanted to do something hands-on um, and, and I wanted to do something that contributed to the community in some form, obviously, because that's why you do it. But I also wanted to get something out of it myself. And by that, I mean, I wanted to learn something new. I didn't want necessarily to do something that I thought would be very easy um, and something that I thought that I could do, you know, easily enough. I wanted to, to, to be challenged on it. And particularly at that point in time, and I'm certainly not saying that that's changed now, but particularly at that point of time, I wasn't very good at um, talking and thinking on my feet and being able to um, help in the moment with things. Just, just in my work life, I, I would often be that person that, couldn't really sit at a table and, and contribute actively. I would want to kind of go away and quietly ponder and then come back. And I think a lot of that's changed now. Um, 
but that was part of the drive for getting into Lifeline on the one hand. The other hand was my mum was very heavily involved with Lifeline um, back in the early 90s. Um, And she worked for organisations like Victim Support and other organisations like that, uh, volunteered for them. So, um, and she passed away in, oh God, when was that? 2015. And so I was very keen to do something that I thought my mother would be um, supportive of and, and something that I felt I could tie back to, to that and have that connection. Uh, and so Lifeline, there was a, an ad actually, ironically, just came up on TV one night and I thought, oh, that, that is quite unique timing. And I thought maybe I could maybe I could give that a crack. And so I applied online and then I got the call up about a month later for an interview, went along um, and they said, yes, we'd love to have you. They were doing an intake at the time of new volunteers. And then um, you go through quite intense training. Um, it's actually very confronting um, training um, and very um, emotionally heavy training, a lot more than what I was expecting. Uh, and, you know, to have, uh, there were only two women in my group of 40 um, intakes, and that was the first time they said that there was such um, a heavy male group. And I think that that's just fantastic. Um, and, you know, I remember in the training session, a lot of these men were, um, they had their own personal experiences with suicide and other things with, within the direct family. And that was their call to action for Lifeline. And I remember you know, a lot of the sessions being very confronting um, around that, very heavy um, and something that you could kind of all gather around each other and work on. So um, the training was sort of six to eight weeks long. Um, it was Saturdays and Sundays for, for that whole time, I think, from memory. Uh, and uh, and then you get buddied up with somebody and you, you have your training wheels off for quite a long time. It's not just a matter of kind of letting you loose on the phones. Um, and then you get a lot of support. Um, and I absolutely loved it. And I think there's a bit of a misconception with Lifeline that, you know, you're talking to somebody who is, is contemplating ending their life in that moment. But it's not like that. I mean, absolutely, there are those crisis calls. Um, but a lot of the time you're talking to people that are very lonely, that actually just want somebody to talk to. Um, sometimes people have problems that, you know, specific problems that they want to talk about. Others just want to chat. You know, it might be an elderly lady who's got no family that just wants to talk for 40 minutes. And so you do that. And, um, and so it was such a rewarding experience. Um, and I think back on it, and it was probably one of the most humbling experiences. There's something quite privileged about being in that position where you're picking up the phone and talking to somebody and, uh, and they're just opening up to you and you've never met them. You don't even know their name a lot of the time. Um, and it's a very high trust environment. And, and part of what that taught me, both personally but also professionally, was that you don't need to solve the problem. And I touched earlier on always being a task-orientated person, sometimes to my detriment. And um, this is one of those instances where actually they don't want to be told to go to their GP if they're feeling unwell or go and see a counsellor. Or you know, they, they're not thinking about that. You know, a lot of the time they're not thinking beyond the four walls of their bedroom or their house um, because life is just too difficult. So um, that was a very heavy part of the training around actually you're not here to solve problems. A lot of a lot of the people that you're talking to don't want that. They want someone to talk to, they want someone to vent to. And sure, there'll be a there might be an occasion on those calls where you can test with them the extent to which they're wanting to solve solve things and get help and so on. But a lot of the time a lot of the time they didn't. Yeah, I think uh, I've often learned that lesson the hard way as well when my friends, you know, have been talking to me um, and, you know, I'm also task-oriented. And so oftentimes I think we can too quickly jump to trying to mm. help people and give them in a, in a sense of giving them advice and, and direction. Um, and in a lot of cases, the more appropriate thing to do is just like, hear someone speak and um, tell them that, you know, you, you're listening, I mm. guess. So you're on the board as well of Waitamata Community Law. Yes. How did you get involved in working in the community law space? Yeah, so I'd, um, I'd finished up at Lifeline after a little bit, and that was largely around work, work commitment so, um, and COVID. You know, they needed to be the supervisor on on the call floor, basically, that was there to help. And they were a qualified counsellor or um, psychologist. Um, it wasn't an environment where 
ironically, demand on their services were at an all-time high, but being in lockdown, volunteers couldn't go. It wasn't deemed an essential service, and so volunteers couldn't go out and do it, and they weren't equipped both financially and also operationally. They weren't equipped to have all these volunteers scattered around the country working from home to do this. And so through COVID and just my own workload meant that um, I needed to step back after a couple of years and so and um, the birth of our child at, at the same time. So it was a busy time. So unfortunately I had to step back. Um, <clears throat> and then after a few years, uh, I wanted to do something again and I wasn't sure what. I, I thought I wanted to get into sort of the more governance end um, of an organization or a not-for-profit. Um, and, but I didn't really have any um, natural affinity with something. You know, I, I don't play sports, so sitting on the board of a sports club or something like that just didn't make sense. I didn't have and don't have children at sort of school, so sitting on the school board of trustees just isn't a natural fit either. And so I was kind of just waiting really for something to crop up. I wasn't actively looking. Uh, and then a board member position came up for Weissmantar Community Law, um, which I just happened to see on, on SEEK. And I thought, I think I could do this. Um, I've got a lot of transferable skills working in the legal industry, so I kind of understand the regulatory framework that lawyers operate in. I've got community experience with Lifeline. Uh, and so I thought I could give it give it a go. And so I applied and, and met the chairperson and treasurer at the time and was invited to join the board. And then shortly after that, they were looking for a deputy chairperson and, and they they asked if I would be interested, and, and, and I said I was. Um, and so that's kind of what led to that. What are the key initiatives and projects that community law are currently involved in? And also, what are the ways that our listeners can get involved and support the local community law centres as well? Yeah, so community law is a free legal service for those people with unmet legal needs. So um, uh, generally people who can't afford um, legal advice, um, which is often a barrier for people. It's not um, a, um, it's not a, it's not an addition to legal aid. So this is mostly about legal advice as opposed to legal representation. Um, and so we have um, clinics and walk-ins that people uh, from our community can walk in, see a lawyer, get some advice about whether it's an employment matter, a tenancy matter, an immigration matter. It's a broad range of anything and everything. And so the lawyers um, at our law centre and actually every law centre across the country uh, are true champions, I think, at being able to know such a broad range of law. You know, an employment query could come in today and then tomorrow will be an immigration matter. Uh, and so they really have to do, you know, they do a great job of clearing uh, and triaging a lot of these issues. Uh, and a lot of the issues that come in the door are, they might not actually start off as a legal issue. It might start off as more of a social issue. Um, and uh, through the discussion with the client, it's very clear that there's actually an underlying legal issue that needs to be addressed as well. And so our motto at Community Law at Waitamatara is that no one leaves worth nothing. Uh, and even if, um, you know, even if it's not a legal matter, we might refer to another agency. You know, if there's a budgeting issue, for example, we might refer them to a budgeting service, just as an example. So... I think the way others can get involved in, so uh, Minters is a proud pro bono provider of community law, uh, Um and just a coincidence. <laughs> and so, and I know, Luke, you've got some involvement uh, with Waisamata law as well, so thank you. And so I think the way people can get involved, obviously being a legal service, if you're a lawyer, um, volunteering is the main way people can get involved. We couldn't survive without our volunteers in particular. So um, we've got arrangements with Chapman Trip, Belgali and Minters. They all send volunteers out every week. Um, and um, we've got a team of sort of six or seven lawyers from memory and, and they're of varying levels. Some aren't admitted yet, some aren't. So what they do is, yeah, they, they take their walk-ins. They're heavily involved in law reform um, and community working groups with sort of the likes of the police and the judiciary. Awesome. Well, to finish things up, I've just got a wee quick fire round sure. uh, to throw you through, Jordan. So what I'd love to do is I'm going to ask you a few quick questions here, and I want you to tell me kind of the first thing that comes to mind, just like maybe a sentence or two, really. So first up, what do others not know that you know to be true? Uh, I think um, that everyone... Everyone is always motivated. It's just those motivations can be quite different. What do people not understand about law or law firms 
that you wish they did? Then it's just like every other workplace. It's not suits. What single element would you want to change about the legal industry today? Probably the accessibility for our community. What's the most painful lesson you've learned that you're pleased to have learned? To slow down and not, not rush into things and uh, yeah, take, take the time to listen and, and bring people along with you. Finally, what's the nicest thing anyone has ever done for you? I actually think it's not so much a, a single act, but I think um, you know my wife is one of the most caring people that I think I've ever come across, and I think that um, you know, having her support um, in my career and and um, and what she's uh, what she sometimes has to put up with, I think, is one of the uh, sort of a big act of care. That's so wholesome. I love it. Thanks so much uh, for taking the time to catch up with us, Jordan. I really appreciate it. And it was an awesome conversation. How can people reach out to you if they're interested in connecting? Uh, so I'm on LinkedIn uh, if people want to do that. Yeah, otherwise, um, there's my, my website profile on the Minter Allison website. Fantastic. Well, we'll put links to Minter Allison Rod Watts, um, Jordan's profile on LinkedIn, as well as uh, how you can reach out to Lifeline Aotearoa and Waitamata Community Law as yeah. well to support them too. Thanks so much, mate. No, thank you. Cheers, guys. Thanks, Ella. Look.